Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today we have Patrick Campbell, founder of Price Intelligently, a pricing consultancy, pricing services firm, and we'll learn all about it in a bit. But as you know, we'd love starting with a little bit of the background behind the guy, the, the myth, the legend, uh, Patrick. Uh, first of all, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's great having another one uh, of our fellow same accent people in, in this room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Us, us Americans, Ma- North American and South. Sounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and your background is quite interesting because not only do you have an American accent, because you were from there, but you also worked for the government. You worked in the NSA. And so we're gonna jump into that in a little bit. But first of all, guys, uh, Patrick started his career as, a, as an analyst in the NSA after having studied economics and math at Bradley, Illinois. And although I am so tempted to go into the NSA, <laughs> I am gonna skip over that, guys. I'm, I apologize because he did threaten my life uh, if I asked too much. So, um, Let's skip over that part of your life and go straight into your time at Google. And maybe you can reference the NSA wherever you need to. Sure. Um, so your your time at Google started off as a sales operations analyst. And maybe you can walk us through kind of what life was like after. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I graduated from school. I mean, while I was there, I, I was, um, I guess the, the best term is, is recruited, but it wasn't like Jason Bourne style or anything like that. It was just because of the, the econ and math background. I mean, I was also doing you know, internships in D.C. and things like that. Um, and so it was, it was actually, you know, to, to comment briefly on it, it was actually um, one of the best experiences, I think, from a, a learning foundation perspective. Um, I, I think I learned a lot about how to make analytics, not just analytics like reporting or something, but also um, logic very practical. So thinking through a problem properly. Um, so I was suggesting someone asked me at a meetup because you know it's kind of a you know a little bit of a hot button thing to mention, you know, intelligence and things like that. Um, they're like, oh, what would you recommend for someone just starting out like in their career? And I said. You know, if you if you can get cleared, you know, I would go work, and you you know don't have moral objections. I know that's a you know big thing lately. Um, I would go work there because it's a um, it's an intensely good training program. Um, and from there, you know, I, I went to Google, and, and a lot of the skills I learned actually helped me because I actually started off as a sales, essentially a sales rep selling AdWords. Um, you know, and, and working in, you know, basically another bureaucracy because I had left, you know, a pretty big bureaucracy being the U.S. government. And what was interesting about it is um, there I, you know, because I had some technical talent, like I would never consider myself a developer engineer because I think that's disrespectful to technical folks. Um, but I have, I'm a script kitty where I can like do things to make myself automated or kind of deploy different you know, models, econ models. And so I started kind of automating my job and making my job more efficient. And I, I hit one of my quarters at like 600% of quota because I had built this model that helped me basically identify the best opportunities in my book of business. And um, we scaled that out kind of across different sales teams and we made you know Google a ton of money. And when I was there, it was it, I kind of moved more into like more of that operations role, helping like enable the sales team. But it got to a point where I made, you know, I quantified like how much I made Google, which was a significant amount of money, um, like, you know, millions. And it was, it was really interesting how, um, 
you know, I, I was like, okay, great. We've made like tens of millions of dollars like off of this model. Like, can I continue working on it? Um, and they're like, well, like that problem is quantified at like X opportunity. This other opportunity is like X, you know, plus three or something like that. We're going to focus there. And it was amazing being at a company where they wouldn't they, like there's that focus that they wouldn't necessarily like fund both fund, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I kind of got a bit disenchanted with working for another bureaucracy here because I was busting my ass and like I made them tens of millions of dollars and I got an award like a loose site award and like $5,000 bonus. Um, and it was kind of like for, you know, innovation award, they called her a global innovation award. And I was kind of like, uh, if I'm going to bust my ass, I'm going to, you know, go and, and work for myself and see if I can, you know, obviously reap some of these, these, these more rewards. Yeah. So we're going to touch on this, perhaps across the different points, both in Jimbaro, which you're going to share us with us a little yeah, bit, yeah. and Price Intelligently as well. But specific to Google, data is one of their big things. And so it would, it would strike me that with pricing, the more data you have about your customer, about mm. the attributes of your customer, about all the types of engagement points they have and sort of other sensitivities and pricing sensitivities that they have, you wouldn't make better decisions. Yeah. And I'm curious, it, maybe you can't share, but is, is something... Were you provided that data in your role? Were you did you have access to that data? How how is yeah. that data used, and how has it been useful in yeah. determining some of the returns that you delivered when you had your six hundred percent quota? Yeah, so I it's, it's it's a really great question. I think it's it, it it goes it starts a little bit earlier. So I've I've always been fascinated with who, like the question of who. Like if you look at a problem, there's like what, where, etc. And a lot of technology is based on like what and where. Like if you think about advertising, if you think about um, sales technology, marketing technology, etc. And so one of the things I did in college was I, I learned a couple of models that are really good at basically. Um, taking a bunch of different inputs and, and getting a good output. You know, that's a very, you know, very simple way to describe it. But there was a particular model that I used um, a lot at, at, you know, the, when I was working in the Intel community that helped with answering who, right? Because the goal there is your, you know, is, is this is a public thing and I don't, I'm not saying too much here, but it's, you know, to figure out, you know, to hunt a terrorist or to hunt a target or something like that. Um, and at Google, you're basically still trying to get after who, but the goal is to hunt money, right? And so if I know, for instance, um, you know, who that person is, if I know that buyer persona, essentially, I can use that for small term optimizations, meaning if they implement click to call, I know that they are going to, um, you know, it's almost guaranteed that they're gonna bring another 11% or 12% or whatever it is, or I know that if I target this type of a customer, the likelihood that I'm going to increase is, you know, X is going to, you know, improve dramatically. And so being at both of these locations, like, you know, there's a lot of data, there's tons of data, there's almost too much data, right? So you have to kind of parse through what's the important metric and what's not. And so when you look at, um, for instance, like Google, like I didn't have access to some of the data that I needed. I had to go through like compliance and a bunch of other things because they're very, you know, privacy at both of these organizations is extremely important for very, very good reasons. And one of the biggest things in terms of privacy is actually um, compartmentalizing data, meaning, you know, when I'm working at one particular part of, you know, the Intel community, I'm working at one particular part of Google. 
I don't get access to everything because obviously there's there's a reason I shouldn't have access to other parts of the world or other parts of the organization because they don't want all the data being in one place because yeah. that gives you a really good vulnerability. Um, and so um, at, at Google, like I had to go through some processes to get access to to data. And um, yeah, but but once I did have access to it, it was you know it was after you know it was easier to build that model. But I will say that. When I left Google and I didn't have all that data, and there was a lot of data at Jim Vara, but at Price Intelligent, we were starting from zero, right? And um, it's it's more like when you're building a model, whether it's you know very very simple in a spreadsheet or very complicated using you know Stata R or something like that, um, it's it's more about like understanding the inputs that create an output. I think there's this really big fascination or this excuse of creating you know I need a ton of data in order to succeed. And I think the big data, um, you know, concept is it's not that it's a myth, like because if you have big data, you can do a lot of things with it. But it, you know, data isn't the solution. It's what you do with the data that's the solution. So you can have small data, quote unquote, and actually get more efficiency out of that data than than using big data if you don't know what you're doing with big data. And so that's that's kind of a big that's a, that's a good point that I don't think I've ever really talked about a lot in other like podcasts and mm-hmm. stuff that I think is worthy of you know noting. Mm. So we'll come back to that in a second, but let's jump into the what you did afterwards. You know, after Google, you, you went to Jimvara, a startup. Yeah. Um, and you worked there for about a year, working yeah. on you know the, the special projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they had. Maybe you can walk us through kind of how you took that learning on on how to optimize sales. Totally. And apply it to Jimvara. Yeah. So when you um, at both my positions, like I was there for for less than you know eighteen months at both of those positions, and so. You know, you don't you don't specialize as much, but you learn really, really good foundational skills, and so that provided me with a really good opportunity to go to Jimbara, where I, I like to say I was a kind of like a random hazard man, where you know there would be a I, I started off in the customer care, the customer support, and and for those of you who don't know Jimbara, it's not you know a huge brand, but it's customizable jewelry, so it's it's you can go on the website similar to like a Blue Nile and basically customize the color of the band, the gemstone that you use. And the gemstone was our big thing. Like you could get a ruby, a sapphire, et cetera. And um, what was interesting there is, you know, basically I would do things like product manage an internal tool all the way down to just making sure that the reps were trained properly. And then I moved into a couple of different problems. And one of the problems was was pricing. And it was a really fascinating um, problem because because of the customization we had, you know, somewhere around 1.6 million different SKUs, um, because you know you might have had like you know a thousand base you know base products, but then all of a sudden all of those could be customized in you know a multitude of ways. And so, the pricing problem you know was less a little bit of what we do now in terms of pricing, and it was more in terms of like finding those larger scale optimizations in order to succeed and, and make little changes. And this is where I really discovered that pricing has like. You know, a pretty big indicator. This is where I brought that who like into play because what we would find is that um, if if we for, we would make these little changes and we would see either really big boosts in in revenue or really big craters in revenue, like relative to to the business. Um, and what we found the one big learning that kind of drove like um, you know my my kind of future into pricing was that pieces that were really simple, like something that you could get at any jewelry store, like let's say a pendant, a letter pendant or something like that, those pieces had a higher return rate um, than pieces that were really, really customized and what you would objectively believe were ugly. And the reason is because you know when someone was designing a very customized piece, they were looking at it from a very emotional standpoint. Like, oh, this is the color of the sunset when I proposed to her, this was her birthstone, this is our kids' birthstones. 
And that emotion doesn't always create the best combination of gemstones, right? Where yeah. you and I would look at it and like, oh, that looks ugly, right? Where in reality, like he or she would explain this to the recipient. And of course, like, you know, kind of like, you know, we all think, you know, I don't have any kids, but I know, like, I know my niece, like she's, she's, you know, the best in the world, even though she might not actually be just because there's so much emotion tied mm-hmm. to that, 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 you know, that kid in this case, this product. And so um, that was a big thing and, and, and started to discovering like, how do you measure that emotion? How do you measure the who? And that's essentially the the, the, the starting piece of price intelligently, um, you know, starting to explore like how do we measure that who and thereby when I understand how you see that value and what emotion goes into that value, I can then do your price because um, a big thing that people don't think about is that your price is the exchange rate on the value that you've created. So it's just basic economics, right? Like if I create a bottle of water and you're really, really thirsty, that value I've created is really, really high. And so you're willing to pay a high price. Now, water is ubiquitous, obviously, at this point in in most major cities. And so the value is really low because I can get it anywhere and I don't value any particular bottle of water as high. So that was kind of like, that was the good transition point for me. And I learned a lot about, you know, I don't want to say like not what I don't, I, I learned a lot about, what I don't want to do as a company as well, because they had grown pretty very, very quickly. And when you grow extremely quickly, it's very, very difficult to um, pull the reins in on things like people ops, alignment within the culture and things like that. And I, I think that for a number of reasons, it was really, really difficult within that organization. And it's not that it was bad. Like I really enjoyed my time there. The people were amazing, but it was just more that um, I learned some things that like, oh, if and when I start a company, like I think I'm going to try to do this a little bit differently. Um, or I know that when I recognize this, I'm going to make sure we do this um, or at least explore solving that because I know that it caused a lot of problems, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it was like a really good, you know, and, and I, I believe that if I had not gone to Jamvara and if I went from Google to straight up starting a company, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that I would have failed. Um, because I would not have learned what happens, you know, in a startup relative to a, you know, at that time, 20, 30,000 person company. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there's a bigger lesson there on like, you know, you shouldn't just start a company, you should go work somewhere first to learn, but we can get into that maybe later if you want. Okay, cool. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do, jump around a little bit, because yeah. you just triggered one of the things that I, I fear some of the audience might be thinking, which is... Mm. It's easy to price if it's a B2C company. Not because it is easy to price yeah. if you're a B2C company or a business to consumer company, but because at least intuitively it can you can kind of visualize the idea. You see yeah. Amazon playing with pricing a little cent up here, a little cent down there. And so what I want to do is, and we can revisit kind of the differences yeah. between B2C and B2B, but I really want to sort of maybe skip yeah. straight to the end, if you will, and jump into the hard bit, which is B2B. Yeah. And I understand that obviously at the end of the day, a human being is the person who's Purchasing yep. that person is subject to emotions, just like a BDC transaction. But I want to maybe explore a little bit. When was the first time you started dealing with helping people in pricing yeah. with more B two B type relationships? And I'll give you an example. Let's sure. say you're a startup and you're working on a proof of concept with a large, uh, a large company, and uh, you know you're creating value for that company, but you're not really sure. Uh, when to start billing and, yeah. and okay well you know the, the proof of concept does have some value yeah, yeah. how do how do I price that value do I price it only after I have the complete the complete package ready to go or do I just do I charge the proof of concept and then if I do offer something do I offer a discount do I not 
Do yeah. I offer like the entire thing first and then discount off from the, the, the proof of concept from the, the total price? And at the end of the day, is this really more about the relationships you build and just getting them to really like you and then hopefully they'll, yeah. they'll sort of pay up? As, or, or is it really something you can think through with data? So maybe we'll jump straight to the yeah, hardest yeah. question that I have. Let's jump right into it. And then, um, then we'll work our way backwards from there. So I want to back up in your question a little bit because I think that you, or actually, you, you, I think your question exposes a really, really big point. And it's it's actually, it's not easier in B2C than it is in B2B. I think you get a lot more potential false positives or like the feeling of traction or testing in B2C because that's a little bit easier because there's a higher frequency, theoretically, of customers. Mm-hmm. But what we find that if you're not Amazon, which all of us aren't, mm-hmm. um, you don't have the ability to run an AB or multivariate test in the span of 30 seconds for some products. Um, I think that you you have this lulled sense of security of, oh, I'll just test it. And, and the problem is that most of us don't have the traffic. Mm-hmm. And even if we have the traffic, like I have oodles and oodles of data that indicate we love to retweet articles. We love to give suggestions about, hey, test it, test it. Oh, well, what do we think? Test it. In reality, none of us are doing that work um, or a very, very small portion of us are doing that work. And so essentially, like one, I think testing is it's a lot harder than people think on to do on pricing because it's not just a clear like, should it be $5 or should it be $15? It gets into positioning, like who's our target customer? It gets into packaging, like what's in that package, even if it's a physical product, right? And then ultimately then it's also the actual number that you're going to charge. And so um, that's, that's the kind of the first thing I wanted to mention because the process we used is basically we started exploring like, okay, do we A-B test? Do we dynamically test? Do we, this is what we're unpacking. I'm like, okay, how do we solve the pricing problem or this who problem that we you know, eventually characterize? Um, do we do discounts? Do we do this? Like, how do we measure all these things and where do we attack? And what we came back to is like, if we continue to go up the chain logically to like, what is the root, the root? You know, what is the root in the particular pricing problem? And the root, especially in subscription businesses or software, given what the distribution channels look like, is the person that you're selling to. So that buyer persona. And so if theoretically, like if we just think theoretically, if I gave you a picture perfect, no matter the product, if I gave you a perfect insight into you know, your most valuable buyer for a, you know, we work with some dating apps. Your most valuable buyer for a dating app is an 18 to 24 year old male who, um, you know, wants to go out on three dates per week. And his, um, you know, his, his profile is he really, really likes the features where he can see the, you know, the swipe the pictures if it's like Tinder or something like that. His willingness to pay is between 18 and $24, et cetera. If I gave you that data and I also gave you like, here's your anti-persona, the person that you shouldn't sell to. And then you can do that on B2B as, as well. Like, oh, it's marketing Mary and here's this full profile. If I gave you that data, instantly decisions become a lot easier. Because in software, and I would argue in a lot of businesses, it's all about picking your market. And a lot of times we're focusing way too much on the product. And we build this product, we spend two years, 18 months, one year trying to develop this product. And then all of a sudden we don't have this market. We're trying to like, oh, let's try to find our market now that we have this thing. And it's just ass backwards in my opinion, because it's now software is relatively easy, quote unquote, to build. It's not as hard as it was 15 years ago. It's never gonna be easy to build a business. But all of a sudden now it's like, I should really be looking at the market I want to attack and then building the thing for them. Um, and so what we what we kind of determined is that 
if I can get you that data, then at least I have a really, really good foundation to know, okay, if I'm gonna target these three personas, now I can set up my pricing page correctly. And maybe there's gonna be like two very specific things that I'm gonna A-B test, right? Maybe it's like, well, the value metric, how they wanna charge, their value is here, but I really think it's better for my business if it's here, like per user versus number of leads or something like that in terms of how you charge. That's something that you can then very clearly test rather than trying to test everything on a page. And so I think that's, I think I totally got away from your original question, but I think it's one of those things where that's that's kind of where we kind of went to the rabbit hole of, even if you don't use any of the tools that we sell or the tools that are open source that you can do this stuff to get that profile of your user, if you just get into a room, and I don't suggest doing this because I think data is really important here, but if you just get in a room and go, get aligned on here's who we're selling to, your decisions around product, your decisions around like, you know, um, uh, sales, marketing, operations even, all become pretty crystal clear. And I think that, you know, that's that's what's missing in a lot of businesses who think they can tactic their way to success in terms of pricing. Yeah. So let's keep on exploring this idea because it's yeah. not just about understanding the customer, which I, I agree 100%, like yeah. is a huge part of it and sort of identifying who you're for and who you're not. But let's explore a little bit of that context of that fictitious startup in that sort of scenario, especially when there's very little data and there's very little relational uh, depth with the people who potentially are buying. You know, Mm. there's only, this is a new relationship, that relationship is- It's a brand new product, let's say. Brand new. And let's, let's play with all the different elements that make up price, right? One of the things is sort of the maximum that anybody's willing to pay for that specific item, right? You know, if, if the most I can ever pay for any item in the yeah. world would be the total amount of debt that I can take from a bank to pay sure. for that item, right? Like I'm exaggerating here to make a point, but yeah. every single customer, whether it be a corporate or an individual, has a maximum price range. Yeah, yeah. Now, that maximum price range, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here, but just to sure. make a point, is limited by obviously the market. Yeah. The market is going to be. Sometimes people will. Hey, wait a second! My competitor is offering your competitor is offering something equally uh, priced or cheaper or, or higher, and so you're going to be pricing your product relative to your your market unless you can come up with a reason why it's worth two x, three x, ten x. Yeah, and that's part of sort of the marketing team and also the pricing team working jointly. Yeah, but where this kind of gets complicated for a B two B play is especially if you're coming up with something that's brand new, perhaps, yeah. perhaps something that's disrupting. An established process where you might potentially have visibility on yeah. what the cost of the pr- current process is, but that's pretty much it. Like you don't really have a good feeling for transparency on their budget. You don't have a very good idea on the sales cycle process. So you, it's yeah. not like they might be able to buy in six months. They might be able to buy in a year. Sure. How do you how do you advise startups? And I'm not being super idea. specific. And no, it's here, great. But it's it's like. There's extremes here, right? There's the yeah. extreme of the, the, the startup who can engage with the persona quite yeah. quite uh, tangibly and quite quickly. And there's the kind of person who's walking into a scenario where they are creating value. Sure. But they're selling that value vis-a-vis maybe uh, legacy technologies. Yep. And that value can either be equivalent so that mm-hmm. the, the enterprise customer is looking at a replacement one-for-one, one, the budget line. Yeah. I'm replacing this legacy technology with this new legacy technology dollar for dollar. Or how do you unlock an extra 2x, 3x, 4x? Yeah. Because like the traditional uh, case study of the light bulb where the you know the eco light bulb costing $12 versus yeah. an incandescent a dollar, that's a 12x increase in price. Yeah. So maybe walk us through a little bit of 
how you would tackle that problem if you're the CEO yeah. of that company. So, uh, you know, it, what's interesting is it's it, it's it's not different than what I just described. Yeah. And, and the, I think that we, we try to, this is going to sound, uh, you know, a, a bit pejorative and, and, and a little derogatory, but it's like, we as like an ecosystem, we really like to try to find hacks and we really try to try to find like easy answers. Mm. Um, even though a baseline amount of work would just would just help infinitely in terms of like what we're trying to do, you know, growth, right? We all like to look at growth tactics and we just add that to the queue. And in reality, just having a growth framework that, you know, is talked about a lot by a lot of growth experts out there, um, you know, like Brian Belfour, Heat Shaw, stuff like that, you know, would just help you like, 12x your growth in that sense and so with pricing i think when you're starting off like not having customers or prospects isn't an excuse not to collect data um the market research costs have come down like almost infinitely from where they were even five to ten years ago so right now i can get um you know there, there are thousands of companies where their entire goal is to get you in front of a b2b enterprise buyer like a cio of a fortune 500 company all the way down to a b2c consumer like a soccer mom or dad or a football mom or dad for for you know, folks in europe and so with that i think that you know and, and one of those costs more right like the you know b2b cio of a fortune 500 company that that's cost is going to be much higher for that 15 minute survey than the you know one to two dollars it's going to cost for the the soccer mom or dad and so i think that the way that i would approach it and you know it's it's part of a process right and so what i would do is i would look at what are the core features that I, that I think qualitatively that I have you know developed via you know qualitative conversations look like? I would then take those and I would set up a framework and we write a lot about this and get into like the specific algorithms and stuff like that that you can use. But I would actually go out to a sample of those individuals and I would ask them, you know, what are the most important, what are the least important features here? And then I would also ask them some willingness to pay questions. And based on those willingness to pay questions, I can then cross-reference that with their different feature pieces um, and then some of the demographic or you know, qual qual uh, qualification data to figure out that, okay, my, you know, this is what they really value and then leads that really value this feature are willing to pay 12x, right? Because when those eco light bulbs came out, it wasn't like mass market where people were like, yep, I'm, gonna, I'm now going to pay 12x for the light bulb. It was people who cared about the environment, right? So that's a really good lead indicator. They're, they're targeting people who care about the environment or people who are getting some sort of a tax break by, you know, that they can figure out, you know, the amount of money that they're going to gain from those light bulbs, right? So it's, it's again, it's understanding that customer and collecting that data. And when you're first starting out, you're not going to, you know, as they say, boil the ocean. You're not going to run a, you know, 12-month research project to figure this out. But doing a five-question survey, and that's all I just described there, is literally a five-question survey amongst 300 respondents that are in your target customer base all of a sudden you're gonna have more data than you are sitting in a boardroom thinking about the problem and you're gonna be able to figure out what those things are because I guarantee you, I guarantee you that competitor has not done their homework. Yeah. Like we have the data on how much people are actually doing customer development, mm -hmm. no one's doing customer development. Um, people but, are making. Customer development is harder for the enterprise type startup, isn't it? Because I, I mean, think it's an excuse. It's, it's harder. It is harder. Like meaning, like it's not like I can just go talk to anyone on the street, right? Yeah. But if you're in that market, that's also a litmus for how you're going to be able to acquire those customers, right? Like if you can't get in front of them to ask them some questions or get them on get them on a phone call or get them out for coffee, then you might have to really reconsider if that's your market. And that's why it's so important to ask those questions up front. Because imagine you build that 18-month-long product 
And all of a sudden you get it out to market and they're like not willing to pay anywhere near where you think it's going to you know, be to cover your CAC. Mm -hmm. You just wasted 18 months of your time. Mm -hmm. But if I do that in the first six months in a very lightweight way, then I know like if I can acquire it. And sometimes like if you have a very negotiable deal, like a survey might be a little bit hard to do. Like, you know, maybe you're doing something where it's a platform play where you only have a hundred customers in the world, right? Well, you're still gonna have to build those relationships anyways, right? And so maybe you get five that you just really buddy up with yeah. and you just use them as like your big customer development. Yeah. You can still use the tactics, but it's just gonna be one-on-one. -on -one. So it's like, you know, hey, big giant bank that I'm trying to sell this, you know, million dollar a month product, like, you know, at what, like, how big is this problem? Like, how do we quantify the problem? Yeah. How do we figure out, like, what the value metric is, like, what we're going to charge for? It's a lot of ways you can do it. It's just, you know, I think that there's no excuse for collecting data. That's, yeah. that's I guess, that my, my main All piece. Right, so let's, let's play with that and let's let's uh, make the example more specific, playing with this fictitious eco-light bulb company. Cool. But let's, let's pretend that this eco-light bulb company just figured out that, yes, there is a demographic that really likes this. Yeah. product and it's large corporates that have large installations of light bulbs because they don't have to replace them as often. So yeah. we're talking about an enterprise sale, it's no longer B2C, yeah. and it's you know product that people can relate to Absolutely. as part of the, the podcast. So now let's look at the circumstances that the, find, the founder finds themselves in. Sure. Identified that customer segment. Yep. They kind of get a feeling for the value of that problem through the interviews. So let's say that problem is worth, I don't know, 30K a year, 50K a year in terms sure. of like the total pain point. That's how much it costs for them to exactly for replace replacing. the light bulbs. Now, this yeah. is the magic moment that I'm like dying to hear how what, what your thoughts are on. That founder is kind of, he's got that number, right? He's got that number, whether he got it from like the, effectively that problem is a 50K, yeah. 50K a year for incandescent yeah. light bulbs plus the replacement of all those incandescent light bulbs. But it doesn't necessarily marry into uh, your eco light bulb. So you have two choices as a founder. You could either say, okay, you know what? This problem is worth 50K to this person. Yeah. And to guarantee that I'm going to sell this product, I'm going to put it at 25K, right? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is, you know, nobody's done this before. I'm the first yeah. guy doing this. I'm going to charge 100K because yes, it costs twice as much, but from an operational perspective, you have not it's made, you have, yeah. you've not actually accounted that 50K the right way. Yeah. You're thinking about it only in terms of the cost of the incandescence I value your operational efficiency by taking this product will be twice it. And I'm yeah. going to convince you of that. And because there is no data points, there is no website, there's no nothing, how would you tackle that ballsy move that you need to make on that yeah. first volley? And you might try to like hedge your answer by saying, but I'll give you a discount. Or mm -hmm. I'll try to package it this way so that you can like make it more palatable. Yeah. But I'm just curious as to how you walked with the founder through that, that first gutsy decision about the total cost yeah. and then how to package that so it's swallowable. You know, it's like, here's the steak, let me cut it for you. You know? yeah. So I'm curious as to those parts of the, of the flow, how you, how you manage that. So the way I would look at it is, so, so there's one big point and it, it's, it's related to the things I've been talking about already is that um, just because it costs that much doesn't mean it's valued that much. Mm -hmm. um, there are things, and we've all had this like build versus buy like you know battle with people, especially in B two B. Like, wait, it's going to cost you a full time developer to manage this and to build it, and they're probably not going to be happy because it's an internal tool, right? So that's like let's say a hundred thousand dollars a year, but you're not willing to pay me a thousand dollars a month, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there, there's that scenario, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I if that's that first decision and I've done some like qualitative research and I can't go out and get like other research because it's you know a big company and maybe there's you know again only a hundred of these companies out there so my data set's not going to be huge, mm -hmm. um, 
what I would do is like, you know, in building that relationship, this is going to be a relationship sale. Um, I would actually use some of the tactics in the sales conversation. So the budget dance is like the most wasted opportunity in enterprise sales, in my opinion. You know, uh, how much does this cost? Well, what's your budget? Well, how much does it cost? What's your budget, right? And someone's got to shoot first, right? The way that you can just completely circumvent that conversation is, um, you know, how much does this cost? Well, you know, what's your budget? How much does it cost? Okay, cool. So we went through the mild part of the budget dance. Well, let me think about it this way. So, you know, we're, you know, maybe if, if they know you're just starting out and that's not a big deal, be like, listen, we're trying to figure out our pricing. Like we have a really, really good solution here, these light bulbs. You're not gonna have to change them for six years. You know, you technically that's gonna save you operationally like 50 grand a year by paying, you know, you have a full-time janitor just changing light bulbs on the incandescence, um, you know, really boost the value, boost the value. Given that, at what point, you know, per year or per one-time fee, would this be way too expensive that you never consider purchasing it? And they might not give you like a direct like one hundred thousand dollars, but they're going to think through it and they're going to talk out loud. And then once they give you somewhat of an answer, okay, you know, thanks, that's actually super useful. You know, we're trying to research and I want to make sure that we're giving you the value that we think we are. Then the next question is, okay, at what point would this be just such a great deal? That you're just gonna you ask me for the docu sign right now, and we're gonna sign the contract today. Well, you know they're gonna kind of like you know sort of give you an answer, and like they'll finally get to something, right? Well, then you got to make a decision as a founder, right? Because then that's 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 why you're you know not paid a lot of times to do, but that's why you've chosen this this profession is to figure out okay, well if they said between one hundred and fifty thousand like fifty thousand dollars to a hundred thousand um, dollars, you know that was like way too expensive, and then that was like the good deal. If it was my first deal, like personally, I would probably, I wouldn't go halfway. I would go less than, than halfway the distance. So something between 50 and $75,000 in this particular case. And the reason is, is because you don't have a brand, like at this point, um, like you're probably not really super confident the product's gonna work. You're not really sure how like the layout, like you're, you're confident, but you're not like, well, we've never deployed this to a thousand light bulbs. Um, you have the onboarding that you probably haven't really thought of, like you've thought of, but you haven't really done before. It's all of a sudden you want, you don't want to like go in and like be like really turning the screws on that first customer, in my opinion. You want to give them essentially a deal. And so maybe I would charge, you know, depending on like some of the internal things like costs and things like that, because those are important, even though those shouldn't be the primary thing you, you focus on. Um, but then I would charge maybe like $60,000 for the deal. Okay, $60,000 and this is why, right? Because in that situation, if you've built that relationship, especially if it's a negotiable deal and this theoretically is something that they need or something that they value, it's not like, you know, he or she is just going to be like, screw you, see you later, right? There's going to be a situation where they're going to go like, all right, well, let me think about it, right? And then you can do different sales tactics to bring it out. But like, that's tactically what I would do for an enterprise type deal. Um, you know, avoid the budget dance and, and get to some some semblance of answer. Yeah, no, that's, that's very useful. And, and I think one of the things that is is, uh, is scary is that moment when you you give that, that number, yeah. right? And I, as I mentioned earlier, how do you cut the stake? Yeah. And I think... If you have no, if, if you're kind of up against the wall and you've yeah. already extended yourself with the 60k figure, presumably your answer to this would be that if you understood your customer, you'd know how to cut the stake. Sure. If the stakes. Were I know that's 60K. not always practical, but yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, how? What? What sort of examples of stake cutting would you see? Yeah. Well, that work well with the enterprise sales process for the first yeah. one. Is it like okay, fine, the deal's worth 60k, but 
let's do it over installments or let's do it over you know on a per user basis totally. or because the one thing is to establish the baseline value that this sure. is worth to somebody but then it's how do you like parse it into the different things absolutely and yeah. so I, I don't know if you can you know maybe go deeper into the framework of how you think through that problem other yeah. than just once you understand the customer issue yeah apparent. I think yeah and I'm not I'm you know we do we, we have you know we have pure software that we sell and then we also have this tech enabled service which is our software and our our expertise and so that's more of an enterprise deal so I can speak to that I'm not a you know not the best sales guy in the world mm-hmm. and so um, I you know it's probably that's a better question for them but I'll talk from a pricing perspective mm-hmm. um, so when a pricing like when you look at packaging or positioning as, as you're kind of referring to with this cutting the steak um, you have a couple of couple of basically fulcrums that you can use in order to like close a deal right and that's you, you suggested one of them like payment terms right mm-hmm. um, you know, upfront, you know, you could do that $60,000 and it's over 12 months um, or it's monthly payments, but you sign an annual contract that renews as well. Um, you could do like, okay, well, you know, we'll do that, but we'll give you like, you could position it as it's $60,000 and we'll give you 10% off in order to pay all the way upfront. Um, but I think if you, if you start from that position of strength and you're not offending that particular person, then you can come back. I think a lot of people they don't they don't know some of the psyches of that customer relationship. Like if you have that type of deal, like one of the first questions you should ask when it's starting to get serious is like, yeah, so what's like, you know, the contract process? Is there a procurement? The reason if there's procurement, because if you're gonna have to tack on an extra ten percent, because that procurement person is basically incentivized that they're not gonna let this deal go through unless they get at least a ten percent discount. And it's not always ten percent, but like you know, you're going to get burned by that once unless you do that, um, because you know you'll you'll like that person will talk you down, your point of contact, and then all of a sudden procurement's going to take another haircut, and you might be at you know a different different place. I think some of the other things that you can add in, um, premium support, is like a is a thing that you can use or take away, um, but there there should be different pieces of that steak or that package that you can take away if they think the budget's too high because you don't wanna go straight to discounting because you've done all this work boosting the value and it's like, this is $60,000, it's gonna save you all this money, it's amazing, You're in, it's revolutionary, you're gonna be all excited about it and then all of a sudden you're like, well, okay, we can do it for 30. You know what I mean? And then like all of a sudden it's like, it's not that you just lost the money, it's also you lost the brand equity too and when they come up for renewal, you know, it's going to be harder and harder to really defend that extra price and trying to get back to that 60. And so things that you can do are like, you know, we used to, um, we used to put in like, you know, and it was marked up, but it was like, we'll, we'll come and like visit with your team and have like a workshop when we have all your data that we collected with our software. And then we'll like evangelize it throughout your team. That's an extra, you know, 15 grand on a contract. Well, then if someone comes back and says, oh, well, hey, like, you know, we really can't, you know, we really need the budget to be to be lowered, uh, then it's like, well, we can take away that workshop. Well, no, I really, really want the workshop. Okay, well, we can bring the workshop down to like, you know, five grand or 7,500 or something like that. That's like, we would, we, uh, like, frankly, I don't want to say this, maybe, but like, we would probably still do the workshop even if like they didn't they didn't need it. But it's a it's a token that we have there, yeah. Um, because we would do the workshop because it's better for retention, right? Yeah. But we're not going to attack or discount the core product, yeah. Because when they come up for renewal on pricing, like yeah. you know, every year, like we don't want them to like attack that, and we also don't want to like cut our monthly you know revenue from that. Um. So there's different packaging things. So the interesting thing about this is that the core product. 
is sort of the the, the key, the, the sort of the, the crown, jewels, if you will. Yeah. And everything around it is something that you can play with to make sure, sure that that preserves its value. But now let's flip that. A lot of companies have started the other way around. They start with a free yeah. product, right? The core yeah. value is a free product. And we have a free product. It's well. a free product. Yeah. That, you know, you can use it, you know, like Medium or whatever. Yep. You know, that's actually one of the problems uh, Medium yeah. is having. Right? So how do I monetize this core product that's amazing, you know, yeah. in terms of blogging and stuff, but I actually need to put stuff around it. And when you see that the core product does like 80% of the work yeah. that is required for the end user, then yes, you're artificially creating workshops and artificially creating these other things yeah. to generate the value, which can then create sort yep. of paralysis. So how do you create value? Well, so free, yeah. yeah. So let's say you, you're now flipping it. Now you're consulting for a founder who has a free product that yeah. everyone loves and is suitable for sixty percent of the customers yeah. for eighty percent of their value. Yeah. So let's let's I can't contractually talk about Medium, but let's let's talk about Twitter. Yeah. Like Twitter. Let's imagine they didn't have an ad network. Yeah. Right. Um, so in that type of scenario, and, and the big thing to keep in mind is that um, a free product, it is not a revenue model, it's an acquisition model. Mm -hmm. um, and I think free products, they've, they've kind of gone down again, but they're going to come back into vogue because CAC is increasing across the board, um, customer acquisition costs, mainly because everyone's got an ebook, everyone's got ads, etc. So people are starting to build free products to basically act as like a premium ebook, right? That's that's essentially how we got to ProfitWell being free. ProfitWell is our free SaaS metrics that plugs right into your billing system. We started off, we were going to charge for it, then we did a bunch of our research and then was like, all right, here, we're going to give it with free. So if we're looking at Twitter, let's say, let's look at like, okay, how would you monetize Twitter without ads? Um, well, what I would do is I would look at, you know, hardcore, like I would look for my extremes, like who are my hardcore active users, um, you know, and, and talk to them and run that customer development playbook. And I would start to categorize them. So let's imagine like we start qualitatively talking to hardcore active Twitter users and we find out it's brands and then individuals. Like there's some individuals who are kind of their own brand. Um, and that's where they, you know, either get books of business, they get a lot of um, joy, they get a number of different things. And then there's brands or companies that it's a little more obvious. It's just they have a really big presence. And then those might cascade into, you know, brands might be B2B brands or B2C brands. And then the individuals might be categorized into um, entertainment and media, tech, and maybe, you know, a couple of other things. Mm -hmm. Once I have that classification, <clears throat> I would look at and, and run some of this playbook and collect some of that price elasticity data and I'll collect some feature data because you as a product person probably have some inkling of what you should be using um, or, or what, what might be a good idea, right? Because you can explore like Twitter could build a Hootsuite competitor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, there might be a theory that like, hey, we could, you know, if we just like gave like multi-account access to Twitter and maybe a couple of the brand tools, we probably could charge a hundred bucks a month. I don't know if that's a billion dollar company, but that's why you're collecting some of this data, right? Mm -hmm. So if you collect that data and maybe go like, you have your upper echelon of really, really active users, and then you have the next, which is maybe not as active mm -hmm. um, or not as happy. You could, you don't have to use active usage because some products active usage isn't the goal. Mm -hmm. um, but for both of those, I would then collect that data and then I'd start to segment the hell out of it. Like based on how many times they log in, based on what features they use, based on what features they said were preferred. And I would look at all these willingness to pay data points um, and I would ultimately figure out where the biggest opportunities were because the, the thing is, is like there's this, this conception of, well, if I just like build the one thing that 90% of my users want, we're going to be a $10 billion business. 
I think the problem is you create really average product and then you create really average pricing and then your churn is bad because some people it's not expensive enough. They don't value, they think you're not really providing the value because you underpriced Mm -hmm. or you're not really capitalizing the value that they're willing to pay. Other people are gonna think it's overpriced. You're not winning anywhere. But if I've done all this analysis, then it's gonna start to point to, all right, maybe we do need that suite of products for businesses in order to get better analytics, um, better targeting options, better whatever it ends up being. Maybe they're the ones who can get 100, you know, uh, instead of 140 characters, they can get up to 1,000 characters or something like that, as they've, they've suggested. But all of a sudden, I start to put this package together, and now I understand like what to monetize. And we had that problem ourselves at ProfitWell because we found out the willingness to pay for metrics was really bad, and we had other market data that like, Metrics and analytics apps have horrible retention, like just across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because you're not actively using it every day and you really shouldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. And also because most metrics tools, it's like, oh, you have a bunch of data. Now here's a thousand graphs to like go weed through to figure out like what your actual problem is and your solution. So we started exploring like, oh, what are the biggest problems? We looked at the metrics, like, because oh, we, we had access to people's metrics. Like, what are their biggest pain points in terms of churn and other things? And we talked to them and kind of ran this playbook and we came up with our monetized products on that front. And so, that's kind of how to like figure that out. And I think that frankly, I would, if I'm, if I'm going free first, um, because some people like Wistia, they wait and they, they figure out all the monetization stuff and then they open up free. Remember it's like a premium ebook, Mm. but if I'm going free first, you should still have some ideas based on qualitative feedback of where you're going to head because you want to make sure you're picking up those data points. Um, I have a ton of problems in, and I've seen a ton of problems with companies that they raise a hundred million dollars and it's, it's not a consumer play like mediums, I think is a big exception there, but they're like, let's say a B2B company, they raise a hundred million dollars and they go after free. Then they become 3000 people large or even a thousand people large. Um, and all of a sudden they're like, their entire DNA is focused on acquisition. And it's really, really hard to get a thousand people, a thousand people, even a hundred people to change their DNA from focusing on acquisition to being balanced and focusing on retention and monetization as well. So mm-hmm. there's some ideas of how it approach free. And it's, it, again, I would say the biggest point is it's, it's about avoiding average product. Mm-hmm. You know, you want things that people love and if they love it, they see that value, remember, then mm-hmm. they're going to be paying for it. And you mentioned something which maybe is useful for uh, talking a little bit about your own company um, and it's when you're discovering that process of all the points that are valuable to that customer base that's really passionate about it in, in different groupings you can run the risk of having a very fractured pricing format so less so now but maybe about six years ago in the UK if you went to a mo- mobile phone uh, retailer and you wanted to like get a mobile phone contract mm-hmm. you would have the, the minutes and then you could add bundles of like, yeah. texts and bundles of data and bundles of other you know like picture messages and all this stuff yeah and you would you could effectively construct such a complex but very tailored thing so if you knew what you were yeah. doing you could actually super customize super customize yeah. it was amazing but for yeah. 90% of the customers they didn't even know what a picture message was before WhatsApp was so yeah it, what was MMS I, I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. and so you then have to do the opposite, which is what Orange did, which was to create these sort of like buckets. Yeah. You know, there's a bucket, and I don't know if I liked their uh, their naming of the buckets, which were like after some animals. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. But the, those buckets make it super simple. You get this or this, you got, yeah. and you just have to figure out which customer you are, which one of those two, three customers you are. Yeah. Now, when you're in that situation, 
that you are now having to choose between going down the super customized route because that is effectively what your data is showing you, that you have a, a fragmented customer base that are all passionate about it in different ways, and you can monetize them. You're just going to have to create multiple little bundles and add-ons and little things. Yep. Or you go for you know, three simple Dropbox style, yeah. like small, medium, large, and you just hope that that's good enough to convert you know, 70% of your customers. How do you make that complex decision yeah. between those two? Because, and here's the, the punchline of the, the question, is your website has the, the magical three yeah. small, medium, large type thing, yeah. but what is arguably a very complicated group of people that are probably approaching yeah. you for stuff. So there's, a, there's like a pretty, that. and there's also like a, like, well, so I think the, the biggest thing is, again, it all comes back to research. Um, surprise. Um, but I think um, for me, the, it, it, what I would then do there is I would look at like pricing preferences. That's what we call it internally. Mm-hmm. So there are certain types of buyers. And if you look at like phone contracts in the US, like very similar concept. You look at buying cable, like your, your internet and, and as well as your television in the US. There's a company called Comcast. I, I yeah. think they're global, but I'm not yeah. entirely sure. Worst buying experience ever because there's 150 options. Those options all have permutations, and all of a sudden there's just like paradox of choice of like I'm kind of picking what I think I want, but I'm not sure if there's a better solution. But they're also they have the advantage of that they're the only one you can go to. Therefore, you kind of have to deal with them, right? Yeah. Um, and also the technology was allowed them to like chop a lot of these things up because some of their cost models made some of those add-ons expensive. So in the U.S., like what has happened is, and this has kind of happened in the U.K., I believe, all of a sudden it's like simplicity was valued in certain competition and in certain customer bases. So you go to like Metro PCS as a brand. Their plans are super simple. It's $40 for unlimited everything. Coverage area isn't great. Um, you know, it's not as good. It's in major cities, et cetera. But they made it super simple because they were they were selling to, they weren't selling to businesses. They weren't selling, they were selling to the mass market consumer and the mass market consumer that cared about cheapness, about inexpensiveness. Um, whereas Verizon, you know, has tons of those permutations. And so what we typically do is we look at what's the distribution model um, because that's going to factor in. If your distribution model is heavily just one website, you don't have a sales team, then stuff's got to be simple typically. Um, and you could do those add-ons later, yeah. but probably after that initial sale takes place because it's easier easier to expand. If you have a sales team and you have a multi-call close or even a one-call close, it can be a little more complicated because all of a sudden you can basically explain what's going on or you have a few slides to mm. explain how things work mm. or you have a few slides to say, okay, you're going to first choose a base plan then there's a whole slide of a bunch of add-ons, and then there's you know a couple of other things we have to think about, right? And and so it's it's it is research, but then it's also thinking about your your channel um, and where you're going to acquire those particular customers because they, you know, that's going to really drive it. And I think you, you guys kind of saw this when OpenReach occurred, right? Because mm-hmm. you went from um, I did an internship with British Telecom mm-hmm. in college in DC, and I learned all about how bad the uh, duopoly in the US is and how you know great OpenReach was, and I'm not sure if it's actually great, but mm-hmm. like. I, I know it went from like basically one you know ISP to like yeah. 200 overnight, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden there was that competition where you know people could go after lower price, people could tailor their messaging to businesses, they could you know yeah. make their products a little bit different, and it was kind of a fair playing field. So that's kind of how we'd look at it. Is really like what those preferences are for your customers, yeah. and you know if you only have remember we were talking about those enterprise companies previously, like if you're only selling to 100 people and it's a million dollar contract 
probably going to be a long sales cycle. That sales cycle is, is going to involve a lot of different moving parts. You can yeah. make it really complicated and you might want to be complicated because you want an add-on strategy, yeah. um, but it shouldn't be too complicated that, you know, it, it kills the sale essentially. Mm. The, the and our three, sorry, to like our three plans yeah. on our pricing, price intelligently website. Yeah. Um, the reason that's simple is because when you get on the phone, it becomes more complicated. Yeah, and we want we don't want to make it complicated on the website, but in reality, we have a lot of different SKUs based on like what they need, right? Because you're bringing up a lot of different problems. The way we approach these different problems are very differently, and so we don't want to put all those on there because then it's confusing. Um, so that's why there's ranges also on those price points because if we're solving one problem and you're a B two B like hardcore enterprise company that we yeah. need to buy a lot of panel for, prices can be very different than if you're a B two C customer yeah. with you know millions of users that we don't need to buy any panel for. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in old school marketing education, mm-hmm. one of the things that people do is aggregate, you know, the four P's or... You know, yeah, yeah, they forget about price. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and pricing is, you know, critical as part of marketing, but not necessarily always considered as part of a larger uh, strategy. It's more like, I've come up with a strategy, give me the pricing for that strategy. Mm-hmm. How often do you find that, you, you know, you start working with a customer you start exploring kind of not only the, the, the customer buying habits, their customers' customers' buying habits, mm-hmm. and you come up with a series of personas and the value that those personas can bring to the table, and you come to the conclusion that actually what you need to do, guys, based upon the competitive landscape, is not go the Verizon route, but in fact go to the Metro PCS route. Yeah. You would best benefit to simplify the way that you talk about your business. Which now moves away from pricing in the more into sort of positioning or marketing, yeah. sort of in a larger picture. How often do you find yourself in that kind of scenario, and how how often is that the only move that's left, and pricing isn't the way to fix it? Yeah, yeah. So positioning, packaging—that's that's the question. So that that comes up, and we do we handle both of those things as well because some people are very like if you have a commoditized space, like let's say you're doing email, like you're sending. Um, you know, like a send grid or something like those, that's, that's exactly the problem because you can't really, it's commoditized. So you can't really make more money. It's more about that positioning. And so I would say it comes up. Um, it, it does come up often. I think that the teams and I'm going to generalize and generalizations are always wrong, but there's some truth, a little bit of truth in them. Um, it, typically very technically focused teams mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily data driven from a customer persona perspective. This is where it comes up quite often. And the reason is because when you have a really, really technical team, your solution to everything is build stuff. And when you want to just build stuff, it's like, well, everything's really valuable. So we should like monetize it in some way. Um, and there's, there are technical teams that like they undervalue their product. I think it's like the ego of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the individual that really drives the difference yeah. there. But um, it's, you know, we, we've all built or seen things that, you know, maybe took an, inor- an exorbitant amount of effort to build mm-hmm. and no one really values it. Or maybe it's like like building metrics is extremely difficult for like finances because it has to be accurate. And accuracy, and I, I won't get into like Stripe, Braintree, Zorro's API or anything, but like given like their APIs and given the, the, the bar for 100% accuracy, it's not easy at all. But even if that's the case, the willingness to pay was not, probably would not have covered that cost. Um, and some of our competitors who let their finance data be public 
they you know they, like it's it's proven that proven that that notion and so I would say like that's that's where it really comes up is amongst those like technical teams or people who think it's like super super valuable which it is it's just the willingness to pay isn't there and then it's all about you know how you like position the price and making sure you don't have what they call a Chinese food menu packaging where you know there's a thousand SKUs when really the software isn't that complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like I took a really direct question and just kind of made it longer. But anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah that's no, how I look it, at it. Yeah, it's. I think it's maybe more of just an affirmation. I think your answer is more of an affirmation that yeah. you shouldn't decouple these two things. You, you kind of yeah. need to. The more, the more people that are part of the larger marketing team that are present during a session with you, the more yeah. like you can comprehensively look at. Yeah, it's cross-functional because when you look at a business. Yeah. Everything you do from your sales, marketing, operations, finance, etc., is all used to drive someone to a conversion point or to justify the product or the mm-hmm. pricing that you've created. And that's why that the silver bullet is doing your customer research because yeah. you're going to have to make some you know adult decisions on like which direction you go. Yeah. But at least you'll have the data to support you know and, and reduce some of that anxiety of you know how complicated can our pricing be should we do packaging should it be all features are included and you just do a simple value metric like that helps like kind of cut through a lot of the bs within those decisions well i want to definitely give you the opportunity to plug your company so (laughs) you know we've talked a little bit about it and and obviously this is a great mechanism this podcast hopefully will be useful for any potential customers yeah yeah yeah. the the, the wisdom that comes from within the the company but maybe who is your customer like who 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 would you like to reach out to and say like if you are this company yeah in, in this one or two or three buckets yeah 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 come speak to us so our personas and they're um they're fortunately you know they're they're good and detailed, and so like just to give the general sense, um, on the pricing side, the price intelligently side, it's typically a business. Um, it, it's actually revenue isn't the biggest determiner um, of who our buyer persona is. It's typically the actual role, um, as well as you know the the willingness to 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 look at this as a process because. Um, not not as like a one time. Oh, we set our prices. We're good for mm. ten years. And yeah. so, and, and that to get a little more specific, um, we have two personas there. Um, typically, it's it, the first persona is, is between like the one million per year revenue up to twenty million per year revenue. The problems that those businesses face are similar enough that it kind of groups them. Um, and it's kind of interesting that that wide of a range is useful. And then the other persona, it averages it's an average revenue, um, or if we aggregate them all of probably around 80 to 90 million a year um, and, and on up. So we have like really, really big companies like an Autodesk or Atlassian and then down to maybe like a, a growth company that's, you know, at, you know, 40, 50 million. And so that's kind of that average. Um, and they, the two act, those two act differently, right? So the other one's kind of in growth mode, like how do we get to a hundred million? Um, and then the other one's like, we're, we're on that path already. How do we make sure we get to, you know, a billion? And so the way you approach those and obviously the pricing for those is very, very different. Our pricing is very, very different for them. Mm-hmm. Um, on the profit well side, um, it's, you know, we have the base platform that's free. And then we also have retain and, and recognize, which is a revenue, revenue recognition product. And the other one's a churn reduction product. Um, our persona there right now and we have is the first one is um, the, the, our target personas because we have some anti-personas there um, is is a one to ten million dollar MR or um, annual revenue individual and then someone who's between ten and thirty million um, in, in annual revenue and the reason I, I mentioned anti-personas is because we know that if someone is making less than a million dollars a year um, it's not that they can't use a product it's not that they get an exorbitant amount of value out of that 
but we're not going to target them right now unless they come to us for selling things. And same thing with someone who's over, you know, 20 million a year. We have plenty of customers that are over 20 million a year on the platform, but it's one of those things where, you know, when we think about where our target is right now. Um, it's one of those things where like the sale works, it takes a little longer than we want it right now. We don't quite have some of the features they want. And I think that's an important distinction with personas. It's like people think like, oh, let's target everyone. Let's like bring them in. And like, yes, maybe inbound, it's okay to accept some of those folks. Um, but if you're gonna like really, really look at who your target should be, what your marketing should look like, what your positioning and packaging and ultimately your pricing should be targeted towards, um, you should really make sure it's focused on those core customers. Mm. Yeah, and that's very useful. Yeah. So we always like to uh, end with a couple of uh, fun questions. Um, the first one is, have you ever been scammed? Scammed? Um, mm. I've, I've, I'm sure I have, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't know. Um, Brings up a funny, like, uh, there's this, I did this research project on, there's a site called scambaiter.com and I discovered it through like Reddit or something like that where, you know, and and Mashable has created this video series on it where they basically, those scammers, those Nigerian prince scams or whatever, they respond to them and kind of like play with them and scambaiters is like a forum that... You know, and it's, it's an interesting problem because these people typically that are trying to scam you are impoverished, mm-hmm. um, but they're also scamming you. So like, you kind of like feel bad because they were forced into this yeah. sort of by circumstance, but they're also doing something by circumstance that's yeah. wrong. And so that's a site that's kind of interesting and very, you know, morally questionable because they make them do like, you know, okay, I'm ready to send the money, but I don't know if I trust you. Can you send me a picture of 30 paper clips clipped to your face? Like stuff like that. Like they bait them into doing like embarrassing things essentially and they post it and laugh about it on the forum. So it's kind of like a interesting thing. But um, I've been scammed. I think I've been, yeah. I think, I don't know. I can't really think of like something like that's good. That's a good story though. Yeah, yeah. off the hook on that one. No, no. I think like I'm trying to think of like, yeah, I've definitely like been sold something that like did not fulfill the value proposition, but I can't think if it was like an actual scam, you know? Mm-hmm. How about this? Start over. Yeah. You're at age 18, knowing everything you know now. Oh, Jesus. What would you do differently? It doesn't have to be work related. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think um, I think I would have been less of a douche, to be honest. <laughs> like, I think, I don't know. I, I come from, like, you know, a very blue-collar background in Wisconsin, and I think that um, you know, I, you know I, I was told I was smart really early on, and I think that that like, you know, I had my own insecurities that then that's what I latched onto is yeah. like, you know, to feed those insecurities. Um, and I, it was just, I mean, it's very average, you know, teenage into your early twenties angst discovering the world. And then, you know, fortunately I surrounded myself with a really good group of, you know, friends and uh, this team I was on in college that kind of like, you know, <laughs> forced me hell or high water to become humbler, um, if not humble. Um, so I, I think, that's probably what I would, you know, probably not be as much of an ass to my parents. I think it's a very standard answer. <laughs> um, but from work for, I don't know. I think like, I'm really glad that I, so I had the opportunity to go to like a much more prestigious school and um, I was like really bummed that I didn't go and like, oh, I should have took the debt, blah, blah, blah. But like in, in hindsight, like it was such a good like forced decision to not because I just, I wouldn't have like been scrappy essentially. Um, I'm trying to think there's anything, that's a really good question. 
I'm going to reflect on it the rest of the day and probably come up with something like super deep and enlightening. But yeah, that's, that's kind of, yeah, those are some of the things. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. This has been a huge gem of a, of a, of a chat. Um, I'm sure a lot of founders will get a lot of benefit from this. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And if you guys are listening and you want to get engaged, um, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah. I mean, Patrick at priceintelligently.com is the best place. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm at, I'm still at the point where I can respond to every email, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it might take me a little bit to get, get back just cause I might prioritize it differently, but, um, yeah. And if you ever have questions on like, Hey, you mentioned this model or something like everything we describe, you can do on your own and mm-hmm. we encourage you to do on your own. Um, we know not everyone's going to want to, and that's obviously why we, you know, sell our stuff. But yeah, more than happy to help. Like explain something. We look at, you know, people who we look at their surveys before they send them, and um, yeah, we're super. We're known for being super helpful, and you know, that's something that's important to me to kind of empower everyone um, as much as I can. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you.